the New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT. Welcome to the New Zealand Tech Podcast. This is episode 260. You're with me, the stand-in host, Nate Dunn, and with me is Paul Spain and Taryn Hamilton. Welcome, guys. Welcome. Thanks All right. So. Well, should we, jump, should we jump in, Nate? I'll, I'll hand it back to you, Paul. You can okay. be the real host. Okay. Okay. First, I wanted to chat about Li-Fi. Now, this is not sort of some dishonesty thing. This is what some media were touting as maybe a super fast replacement for Wi-Fi. What do you guys think about this? It seems to have had a fair bit of uh, mainstream coverage in, in the last few days. Uh, my understanding is it's basically using light to transmit data seems to do it pretty quickly but you need line of sight for light it's not just the same as wi-fi that goes everywhere you've got a a few pesky walls in the way though often don't you so yeah it might not be quite the right angle because it's usually got to be quite directed as well but you get much better speed is that the i know very little about li-fi it's one of the topics I'm a little bit rough on. So the idea is that you can get much, much better speeds than you would with Wi-Fi, but the trade-off is... Better throughput. You've got to be in the same room. So the talk is a a theoretical speed of 224 gigabytes per second is what the BBC reported. Uh, I don't know whether that's quite accurate. One of the pictures online sort of shows data being transmitted from ceiling-based lights. But there's yeah there's this company um, in Europe that's been uh, demoing it and and showing it off. So it's kind of curious, but I think most of us practical. would agree it's it's probably not a general fit to replace Wi-Fi at the moment. But there might be some specific scenarios where you want to limit the coverage of data. You do want a lot of speed, and it, it might come in handy. But uh, well, I wonder if it's a stepping stone for something else where this is sort of the first prototype and then it evolves and then we end up with a sort of a mishmash of Wi-Fi and maybe this. But it's definitely something that's a point of contention lately because Wi-Fi is increasingly becoming the the choking point in the household for for throughput. You know, there's lots more households and businesses are going to ultra-fast broadband. You know, Wi-Fi is becoming the sticky point. So... Yeah, it's good to see there's progress, but I, you know, I don't think this one's at all practical at this stage. Not yet, but we'll we'll look. And of course, we've got, um, you know, we've got used to 802.11 AC or just AC as it's usually abbreviated to in the last couple of years, which yeah can give gigabit plus speeds in certain uh, scenarios. But we've got 802.11 AD or, or uh, Y gig, uh, which is coming along as well. Taryn, do you have to keep a sort of close watch on these things as a um, as an internet provider? Yeah, absolutely. And I think, as I mentioned, it's becoming more and more important now. Um, the the termination point, for lack of a better term, in the household for broadband at the moment is changing with UFB. Chorus are increasingly installing behind your TV, and that not is not necessarily the the centre of your household. Uh, so that you know, coverage internally is making uh, you know is really highly dependent on quality of your Wi-Fi. We should actually just double back. I realised when we did that odd introduction, uh, Nate, I completely we, missed out how Taryn fits into and and how you fit in. So let, let's let's just roll back to our usual introductions. Um, Nate Dunn, thanks for coming on the show. Where do you fit into the technology world here in New Zealand? I feel that my role as a host is being short-lived. So I own a, a software house called Three Bit. We're a bespoke software company, and I've got my fingers in all sorts of other things like cafes and 
other stuff. So other technology firms, you do you do indeed. Um, and Taron Hamilton. I think you're doing stand-up job, Nate. It's going, <laughs> going all right so far, pal. Um, so I run um, Slingshot Orc on a flip. Three of the kind of up-and-coming, uh, like way I like to think about it, innovative telcos in the New Zealand market. So I work for a company called M2. Good. All right, we'll, uh, we'll cycle back and talk a little bit more uh, about that further into the show. But uh, next topic on our list is around KiwiKids jumping in on the uh, global hour of code campaign this sounds kind of interesting basically this pro this program is happening around the world and it's returning again uh, this year um, as part of the computer science education week 7th to the uh, 13th of december and we've got uh, in New Zealand Microsoft partnering with a, a bunch of uh, educational groups such as uh, OMG Tech, Code Club, High Tech Youth Network. And it, it's really about encouraging youngsters, Kiwi students, to get on board and have a go at learning to code. So it seems like a good initiative to me. Nate, you have a software this company. Right you, you must be quite alley. keen on this concept. It is. And the, the issue that we see in our particular industry is you've got gems like Zero and Vend and all the other players here at NZ who are just hoovering up talent left, right and centre. So for us as a much smaller company, we struggle to get good qualified staff on. So you end up having to bring on juniors. And so uh, my business partner and I, we actually ended up going back to MIT, which is Manukau, not Massachusetts, for the record. Uh, we ended up going back to Manukau and just interviewed a whole lot of people that were in their last semester and then picked a couple of people off like that. And they're very junior, so we're having to bring them up. But we just could not find any good talent because everyone wants to work for zero, which is very annoying. But great success story, but very annoying for us. On that note, for listeners that are interested in you know, maybe looking and think your company's pretty cool, what, uh, what technologies, what languages do you focus on? So we on? primarily do the Microsoft stack, so .NET, SQL Server, those sort of... I normally say to people, it's a whatever you know what trade me uses. We use the same stack of technologies, the Microsoft stuff. So, cool. Yeah, I think this is great initiative. I took a look at it earlier at the uh, Code.org website. Look at a little Minecraft tutorial. Emailed my ten-year-old son saying, "Mate, if you say you want to be a game developer, you, you need Get to do on. a little bit more than sitting in front of Minecraft YouTube videos all day. You need to actually learn <laughs> this stuff." So, and I think I too, think start, starting at the ages where kids can develop a bit of a passion for this sort of thing and. You know, they may find that they struggle with the, the sciences or the, the maths or, or the arts or, or whatever else, but actually getting to this and may think, oh, I'm actually really good at this. I could make a, a good career out of it. And some of your senior level programmers, analysts, those sort of things, they're making really good bank. So, yeah, I'm all, and obviously very biased because I sit in this industry, but getting kids into to coding and, and technology at early age, I think, is is a really good thing. Nate, when did you get involved in technology? Oh, when I was a when we first my old man got his uh, IBM PS2 I think it was and I would have been 8 I think I remember he bought a laser printer which cost him 15000 which we thought was amazing at the time was for, for business for, for business, business yeah he was an insurance broker and um, yeah so he had to have all the stuff to be able to print well, that's quite a big commitment back, it's huge. back in those it's days it's huge but yeah. it was an amazing laser printer and I because we had the printer I had the most amazing um, projects when I went to school because none of the other kids had printers I had this big behemoth at home. So, yeah, it was, I, it was from a very, very young age. Mm, mm. Yourself? 
Uh, for me, very young age, so, you know, exposure to technology. And I think me and my older brother, Jeremy, were very keen on just anything that lit up or had, had a technology element to it. So whether it was the uh, uh, Space Invaders or Pac-Man machine or whatever those, those early um, you know arcade machines were down at the local uh, fish and chip shop, uh, down to the little uh, Simon electronic games and and then any computers we could we could get our hands on, and some of that was probably in the blood. My uh, father always been a sort of a mathematician and computer guru, and so yeah, I think he got started out uh, with an early form of calculating machine where you had to turn the handle. I don't know if anybody in this room you're both looking at me very blankly. Uh, so uh, that was sort of a yes, a very manual type of machine uh, somewhere somewhere after the war. So yeah, my parents were were, were born uh, uh, just before World War Two, and you know in those days we obviously didn't they didn't have the technology we've got today. But uh, yeah, my father was always working in in the university world and with the varying computer technologies they had that were you know very much at the forefront ahead of what uh, businesses tended to have. So. I'd every now and then get a little bit of exposure. He'd let me in to to see some of that technology, or you know, they'd have a many million dollar computer, I suppose, and uh, he'd let me play some text game on it. So uh, yeah, probably nice. using thousands of dollars of CPU time to um, you know play some game. But uh, yeah, last but not least, Terrence. Nice. When did you get into it? Would have been probably early teens. I remember rocking out the two eight six CGA video card. Playing Leisure, leisure Suit Larry yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah, yeah. <laughs> and Rick Dangerous, uh, 300 board modem dialing up to bulletin boards, and yeah, it was going back a fair way. You know, I remember being excited about getting the Sound Blaster uh, sound chip yeah. in the computer. It was just you know, out, of, out of this world, and then upgrading to a 9600 board board modem was another milestone. Yeah, cool. Yeah, so I think we're, we're, what we're all saying is this: this is a good thing, and uh, yeah, certainly for me as, as well as a, as a youngster getting involved in programming, uh, you know, I think help give me some good foundations to ultimately work in the technology industry. It gives you a, a, a good knowledge, even if you don't end up uh, being involved in the in the development of software. There's some some great foundational skills there. Uh, now, in terms of a couple of things we've got here, one we forgot to talk about last week, which is um, the new um, HP, uh, is that the, the X2 there, or NVX2. Um, uh, both of you guys have had a little bit of a play around with it, and you, you're both fairly familiar with the Surface. Now, how does this compare? Because it, it is one of the, I guess increasing number of what do you call these things sort of you know two-in-one tablet come laptop devices that have that same style of keyboard which is you know basically a magnetic cover and removable that as well. clips on uh but inside that cover is a uh, is a keyboard taron what, what do you think of the sort of the look and, and feel of it yeah I'm all, I'm all about the the, the hybrid touchscreen laptop combo that seems to be so popular now you know even when i use a normal laptop i find myself touching the screen to to navigate um this one's got a lot of chrome uh, I'm, I'm not not a big fan out of chrome it's a little bit but a little bit 80s for me because um, it's got the it's got the chrome stand it's it's somewhat similar in approach to the surface pro isn't it yeah yeah it's 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 the same functionality by the looks but it's uh, fairly rigid and um 
Yeah, I'm not sure I'm a fan, to be honest. I just think the stand's a bit weird when you're so used to seeing the solid stand of one of the Microsoft devices. And I proved just before, when you click the stand in, it's not very intuitive to see how to... Like, I would straight away think you'd push the stand and it would sort of bounce out, and then. but there's actually a slide on the side that you need to flick down. It looks one of those, you know, add-on optional... Yeah. Customize extras, you know, pimp out your 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 tablet. Yeah, I, I my thought on it is that yeah, this is a new category that Microsoft you know have have created. Uh, I guess initially, sort of reasonably single-handedly. Of course, they rely very heavily on Intel's technology inside it to actually make it a practicality and and make these things reasonably small. And now, as we've got other players coming into the market, be it HP, Lenovo, uh, Apple. Uh, Google, they can't just do exactly the same as what Microsoft are doing. So, you know, there's a level of being inspired by, but yeah, I think it's kind of good that they're trying different things, whether, uh, yeah, all of those things are uh, perfect or not. I guess, um, yeah, it's unlikely to be the case. And even the Surface Pro isn't the, isn't the perfect product for everyone, but uh, these things are, are advancing and, and they're pretty good. I just um, have we possibly ruined you getting sponsorship from HP in the future? <laughs> <laughs> hey, we talk freely about the products, whoever, whoever makes them. Um, it's shiny. I'll give it, it, is, it, is, it is shiny. Um, but this is, one of, this is one of the new products that is based on the new 6th um, uh, gen you know, Intel uh, core chips. And that, that's part of what, you know, what makes these possible in terms of size, lack of you know, cooling fans and, and, and the like. I'm assuming it's better battery and faster and that sort of thing. Is, is the well, there has, they, HP haven't had a product quite like this before. Uh, so, yeah, I mean, they have had an X2, but it's a, it's a different product. So, yeah, it's worth doing a bit of comparison. There's a stylus uh, for it as well. Um, so yeah, overall interestingly cool product um, in many respects. But yeah, as you as you both mentioned, uh, it's not maybe quite perfection. But I think they're doing a doing a reasonable reasonable job. So would you use this as a desktop replacement or a travelling device? Yes, yeah, it's interesting, isn't it? Because I mean, people are starting to use their Surface Pro as that kind of everything device. The question is, with the other products that are coming into the space, like like the HP here. Is it as as complete and capable as the Surface? Uh, now, this is their consumer version. They've also got a, a business version, which is, is similar, a slight step up. I think that one's about $1,700. Uh, and certainly the consumer products tend to be lacking in great docking solutions. So that's where the Microsoft Surface Pro seems to handle things well. Uh, now, the other one we've got is the new... Asus. Now, this one, it's called the um, Asus Transformer Book Flip TP200. Uh, very similar to previous devices that they've re- released uh, in the market. And it's a two-in-one, so it is a, a laptop come tablet of sorts, but it's a little bit different in that you fold the screen back to get the tablet piece. Uh, I don't believe you can actually remove... The, the screen as you have in some of their other transformer books it is at the lower end of things so this is based on a, on a Celeron uh, chip from from Intel and it's got a price point of about $550 here in New Zealand so it's very much at the the lower end of the the scale and they're throwing in things like a free one-year uh, office 365 bundle on some of their models 
and it's got an 11.6 inch screen and uh, USB-C connection. So, um, yeah, a bit of a different approach. It's a pretty good price point. Yeah, I was just thinking that. Amazingly I mean, cheap price point. I'm not too sure what, what demo or target market they're, uh, they're after, but certainly as a, you know, like a school kid device, it would, it would be great. I'm just thinking about one of my, you know, my daughter's schools at the moment it's asking me to buy a Surface Pro or a, is it Yoga? Yoga? Yep. Um, at the moment, and they're all in the you know two thousand dollar plus range, and I'm balking at that. Cheapest. So you know something around five or six hundred dollars is a lot more palatable for me as a parent for sure. Um, it, lo- it looks like you're getting quite a lot for your money too. It's a pretty solid, reasonably well finished device. Yeah, I think you know they've continued to to make these and the transformer books and you know various variations, but a lot of them are very much at that value end of the market. Um, so the specs aren't particularly high, but doing the basic sort of stuff that a lot of people need to be able to do, um, you know, they're just just fine in terms of basically running uh, running Windows 10. It's uh, uh, 1.2 kg, so it's pretty light. Uh, they suggest it's about eight hours worth of uh, battery life. Um, so yeah, for that sort of price point, I'd, I'd say. Um, probably pretty suitable those student scenarios or if you you just need that sort of casual machine for use use around the house and so on well you can get three of them for the price of the hp can't you that's so. that's true that's true yeah yeah all right so moving on a couple of other uh other topics we had up our sleeve science and innovation minister stephen joyce has announced a uh, new block of funding uh nearly a million dollars worth for 25 additional projects around the country aimed at engaging young people in New Zealand uh, with science in, in the field of uh, science and technology under what they're calling Unlocking Curable Minds Contestable Fund Pilot. Putting the name aside for a minute, because these things can, can be uh, a bit confusing. You mean Stephen Joyce? Or? <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> Put and put it, you know. I guess it, you know. This is this is all uh, all politics, but you know, we we put that put that aside in terms of you know what sort of opportunities this potentially uh, creates. Is this um, something we we need to be doing more more of? Is this the right direction to be funding, or should we be firing sort of funding more at the startup businesses and and so on more than um, the educational side? I think more is more as far as this sort of thing is concerned. One million dollars is not a lot of money though, so it's it's a pretty pretty trivial amount. But um, I think it's important to be supporting these bottom up ground ground level initiatives as well as a you know kind of mainstream curricular activity you know i think new zealand spends about 13 billion dollars a year in, in in education so uh this is just a drop in the bucket really but um you know it'd be really interesting to get a little bit more transparency around how much of the education budget spent on on this type of um this type of initiative and you know science and technology related related things mm. yeah they're saying uh there'll be two two levels of grants up to twenty thousand dollars for local projects and up to 150000 for uh, regional or um, nationwide projects. Any thoughts on this, Nate? Is it, um, I'm trying to think of what, how I can pretend to be a school kid so I can get 150000 All right. I'm sure we can come up with something on that uh, <laughs> af- after the show. We'll we'll, we'll put I'm sure we can put our heads in. Uh, you know, the, uh, the three-bit um, something or other uh, division, education. Yeah, we can. 
We can come up with something. I can think of a lot, lot worse things for bureaucrats to spend their money on. There you go. <laughs> put it that way. All right. And then we had we heard last week that Zero directors uh, Rod Rod Drury founder uh, also uh, Sam Sam Morgan uh, of uh, Trade Me Fame and other things and uh, ex MYOB uh, founder Craig Winkler have sold a chunk of their shares after the um, prices went up reasonably. This makes sense, Nate. I'm not a big share share trading person. My business partner is an avid one. And but you I own you own shares in your own business, and that's I guess a similar yeah. Base but I, here I don't for Rod. You own shares. Yeah, in I don't businesses. play the share market because I yeah I'll, I'll end up wasting a lot of money. Um, but my business partner is an avid share trader, and he he said he wasn't really he's got zero shares. He wasn't really too worried about it. It was all very transparent, very open. Um, but would you be doing the same if, if your company got to the point where it was you know, traded on the uh, stock exchange and the uh, prices had gone up? You'd be looking to cash in, I would, I, I would think, at some point. Yeah, you want to be able to enjoy your money. You don't just earn it for the sake of seeing a number on a, a spreadsheet. You actually do want to be able to get it and spend it. I'm sure Rod can, has got uh, things he can spend on with his kids. Um, yeah. Yeah, it says that Rod cashed in close to $9.5 million. Because he's been here on the podcast as well. He has, yep. Yeah, I agree with Nate. You know, I, I think it's a pretty nominal shareholding to, to sell down. You know, I think Rod's quoted as, as being all in on zero, so I don't, I don't think he has a very diverse portfolio of investment. <laughs> Not that he needs it at the moment, being worth the thick, thick edge of a billion dollars. Um, whereas Sam Morgan's a pretty astute and professional investor now, and he's got a very diverse portfolio, so... And is not, from my understanding, involved in the business. But um, it always raises a bit of an eyebrow when, uh, you know, executive directors are, are, you know, selling down their shareholding for sure. But it's a pretty pretty small amount, so I don't think the market will will take it too badly. I think you've got that. You think of that analogy: why do rats desert a sinking ship? When when you get executive selling, but yeah, as you said, it's such a small percentage. It's not like they're dumping it and they're going, well, we're sort of out. Let's just quietly sneak away and no one will notice. No, no, not 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 quite. Um, and we also we heard recently that uh, airline Wi-Fi speeds are going to be bumping up. So uh, Singapore Airlines, are one of the ones that are that are kicking this off um, with the service called uh, Global Express, and it's a yeah basically a new faster in-flight um, internet connectivity. So. This sort of thing's been around for a long time. The first uh, service to start up was the Boeing Connection service, which uh, sort of began in the early uh, early two thousands, and I th- you know think uh, uh, initially became available. The first flights they tested on was about two thousand and three, and I remember trying it out in in those those very early days. I think it was on a Singapore Airlines uh, flight, and uh, yeah, it seemed like a really good initiative. But of course. In those last 12 years or so, we've all got used to somewhat faster internet speeds. So uh, when you get on a plane to get Wi-Fi now, and I, and I did I did use uh, Wi-Fi on a Singapore Airlines flight to uh, London uh, some months ago. And yeah, it work, worked well, but certainly the performance is nothing to write home about. So uh, a little bump up to uh, 50 megabits per second, um, probably not a bad thing, guys. Oh, that's fantastic. Um, I, I know that... Uh, about a, I think it was about a month before or a month ago it was announced that GoGo who are the big Wi-Fi pro, um, providers in the US so they did a demonstration where they actually had Netflix YouTube and Spotify all playing on a laptop all at the same time which if you've ever used those wireless services that's just 
un- unheard of. And, and Singapore are taking it further because it's long haul. It's not necessarily over the continental US. It's mm. over big bodies of water. So, yeah, isn't, wouldn't it be amazing to think in a three or four years' time or maybe even sooner you'd be able to sit there with your Netflix instead of having to tap-de-tap on the in-flight entertainment that the airline's got, you could type in your Netflix credentials and watch Sons of Anarchy or whatever the... Whatever you're up to, yeah, because I think yeah, GoGo have been talking about uh, 70 megabits. But uh, well, that's for the whole over, plane over the over the US. So, uh, so if yeah. you get some of the you know slingshot technicians who are pulling down big ISOs or, or whatever well, while they're, they're sitting on a plane, whatever they're wanting to do because they're being sent over to a, a Vegas conference. And, and end up sucking down the bandwidth for everyone else. Low cost ISP, mate. I'm not, <laughs> not, I'm not a Vegas conference thing. Yeah, I'm not. I'm not too sure about this one. I think technically, yeah, great initiative. But you know, I find travelling and being on a plane is one of the few places you can actually disconnect. Hmm. Um, both travelling as a as a you know consumer as and um, you know travelling for business purposes. Um, so I'm, you know, I'm looking for any excuse not to use the internet on an aeroplane, to be honest. But um, and, you know, and also the other other point to that. This is all very well being um, fast and increasing the throughput, but you know how much you're paying for your data. Um, you know yeah. if there's some sort of price certainty with you know, uh, and it's a capped service that you can't blow out. Um, you know I think that's really important. But I think Singapore Airlines are one of the ones that have come under a bit of criticism recently for allowing their consumers to you know to go over their data allocation and get some hefty bills when they land. You know it's tough enough to travel affordably and roam on your mobile devices it is when you land in your destination let alone you know in the air on the way there yeah i mean when you offer in flight access to 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 mobile device mobile networks that yeah i don't know how many people use that but access to the wi-fi i think is uh is is pretty pretty handy and yeah, on those long flights it's pretty reasonably priced in the in the scheme of it if you want it and if you don't then i guess you you don't you don't pay for it if you want to be disconnected now Hewlett Packard uh, Enterprise, we we spoke about a few weeks ago that they were they'd been offering uh, cloud services, and they announced they're basically shutting down their own uh, public cloud services. Announcement has just come through the last few days that uh, they are partnering up with Microsoft now, so they're dumping their own product and uh, going to become more closely aligned with Microsoft to offer Microsoft's uh, Azure cloud services. Nate, does your uh, does your company use a lot in terms of cloud services for the code that you write and and so on, or are you usually on uh, more localized uh, uh, hosted servers and the like? Um, no, everything is cloud now. Um, yeah. We've just finished a big project actually using Azure and S3, which is their storage platform. Ma- mainly, people are moving to the uh, Azure and S3. Uh, not Azure. Um, oh. Amazon. Yeah, no, I, I can't remember what the Azure equivalent of the Amazon S3 services, whatever it is. This is really terrible. But anyway, continue on. Um, because people want to be able to, on their laptop, on their smartphone, on their laptop at home, they want to get easy access. Um, you know, the Christchurch earthquake was a, 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 the perfect example of why having in the accounting space or your accounting data sitting on a server in your office um, people with zero could quite easily get back up and going because it's it's sitting in the cloud. The cloud doesn't have its disadvantages, but in this mobile and connected world, the cloud just makes perfect sense. And so, yeah, we're seeing everything goes cloud. You know, maybe we also sit in that MSP space, which is an MSP is like a IT company very similar to Gorilla Technologies. Um, they're finding, you know, maybe five ten years ago they were being able to push ten servers. Um, install um, exchange and that sort of thing and make good money off it whereas now office 365 
Google Apps. It's no one's installing on-prem, or the, the really smart ones are not installing on-prem stuff anymore. It's all cloud stuff. Yeah, that's right. It certainly um, ends up in most cases delivering a much, much, much better result, which is why we're seeing things move quickly and in that I th- direction. I think not only you get the good results, but you also get scalability. Like as you would see in the clients you have, if a customer goes from one mailbox to a hundred, they can just pay more for their yeah and it's the the resilience resiliency as well where uh you know as a a, new zealand being full of small to medium businesses if you have your email server on site you've got one one point of uh, failure whereas when you've got it sitting in you know office 365 for example or uh with with some of the other players like google that are offering those services you know they tend to have multiple servers in multiple locations running so if one goes down that you're still operating and as you say plenty of scalability and and flexibility there and i think really the only um companies that we've seen in our experience that we deal with are ones that have got issues around data sovereignty so um medical field government um those sort of people where they they don't really want their data leaving nz those are really the the people that we see that aren't big on cloud because they want their data to stay here but in some instances, they use Gmail, which... I, yeah, you know, it's becoming much, le- much less and less of an issue, isn't it? Yeah. I mean, yeah, yeah. Um, okay. And RAM for your computer. Um, up until, well, this most recent announcement, the biggest memory stick or RAM that you put inside your computer, I think, was a 64-gigabyte uh, stick. Uh, Samsung are bumping that up again, 128 gigabyte and a, a stick of RAM. So uh, you think of a, a motherboard and uh, maybe a server that takes, um, I don't know, 16 um, sticks of RAM. That's a pretty big amount of data, right? <laughs> See what your mental math is like. <laughs> it's a huge amount of RAM. Yeah, uh, over one and a half terabytes. So um, yeah, the amount of the amount of RAM you can now get in a machine is, is, is just moving up, and of course. Uh, uh, this new RAM is, is super fast, so um, just delivers you know better and better results for performance. Is computing. RAM always quicker than solid state hard drives? Yes. So you never get to the stage where you don't need memory and you can run everything off disk, D- like the the solid. It state. serves a, it serves a different purpose. Okay. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. Kind of, kind of bends your mind what what applications this is going to be used for in the future, doesn't it? I mean, yeah. I can still remember plugging in sixty four meg. Sticks of RAM, so you know. I remember one meg being amazing that it was only a hundred dollars for one meg of RAM. Um, anyway, so I think it's now now it's time to uh, Taren to get a little bit of an update on what's happening at, at M M two, uh, which is is the business that you're uh, you're heading up uh, locally, the consumer consumer side of that. Um, can you give us a little bit, little bit of an overview? Uh, just run us through the uh, the elements of the business because you've got multiple brands, and you know what are the what are the interesting things you've been doing in the market? And tell us about the acquisition that's uh, that's happened in recent months as well. Yeah, so fair to say, M two is probably not a household name in New Zealand. I don't even think it's a household name in Australia. So it's uh, essentially just an ASX listed company. Um, doesn't really have any customer facing um, users using or interacting with the M two brand. So New Zealand, we're most famous for running slingshot. Isn't it a magazine? Aren't you guys a magazine? It is a magazine, yeah. It's pretty, it fails the barbecue test. Who do you work for? You know, it's usually just, you know, I, I work for Slingshot and Norcon and Flip. Aren't they different companies? Well, yeah, okay, so it's a fairly long conversation. Um, so we run those three brands as well as a, as a couple of business brands as well. Uh, it's been some interesting times. So we've just been acquired by M2 about four months ago now. 
Um, since then, there's been an announcement that there'll be a merger with them too, and another ASX company called Vocus, who have also got a New Zealand presence. So they're more of a infrastructure company. So um, our brands in particular are big customers of Vocus. We buy international capacity from Vocus. Um, so it will create a more of a vertically integrated telecommunications company rather than a uh, in, in Australia the the M2 brands are more resales don't have a lot of network, network infrastructure um, so yeah a lot more vertically integra- integrated company so you know stuff we've been up to recently so we've come off a pretty big year um, our three brands picked up about a third of the share of growth in the market which is great um, we set about 15% market share overall uh, so we're kind of doubling down on that which is which is fantastic Um Little, you know, a few points of contention uh, last year. Uh, Slingshot and Orcon were pushing a global mode messaging really hard, which was a which was a great story and great message. Um, Sorry, what was global mode? So global mode was the service that we enabled to let people easily circumvent local geographic res- restrictions. So accessing US-based Netflix, um, you know, a- Amazon Prime services like that, BBC iPlayer, those sort of um, those sort of content plays. So originally it was born out of frustration that those services just you couldn't get in New Zealand. So the people were the only alternative was to pirate pirate content. So there was no local streaming services in the market. Um, so there was a little bit of uh, legal action going on there for a while. So um, what? So what actually happened? That run us through why we don't have those global mode uh, services from from our local internet providers anymore. Well, before you start, maybe pointing out that this was quite different to any, what anyone else was doing because as a consumer, you can change the settings in your router and quite easily do it, whereas... Well, you can sign you can sign up to another service. Yeah, and, yeah. whereas Slingshot, where I think through a console, it wasn't it? Through, you could actually flick it on and off. Yeah, yeah, basically. We made it a lot easier than, you know, people can still sign up to various services on the net to, to achieve it at the moment um, there's no secret there but we were making it a lot more easier than what had traditionally been capable right so you'd sign up for Netflix this was before Netflix was launched you could sign up for Netflix and it would just think you were a US consumer in the US and away you would you would go yep happy days so yep. um, you know that was extremely popular um, the local content players um, really really didn't like it um, they chucked up a big stink, um, hired a bunch of lawyers. Um, you know, we 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 gave in for a couple of reasons. Um, one that I think it had served its its purpose. Um, you know, when we started, as I mentioned, there was no local players in the market at all. Um, through the time we were operating the service, um, there, I think there were there were one or two. But, yeah, there were, but, but there wasn't not a, it wasn't no, the sort of the base that yeah, we have was, now. Like yeah. Quickflix, for example, were yeah. one which had ten thousand customers maybe at a stretch. Mm, so mm. Um, the big ticket ones, obviously Netflix, they've come in subsequently and, and pretty much dominated local content market for streaming services. Um, and it's actually not bad. You know, Netflix in New Zealand has got most of the content that um, the US one has. Um, but certainly, when it launched, it was it was not great, but it's progressively become. You know, more capable service, which is good to see. Uh, and obviously, we changed um, changed owners, so we went um, from being a family owned and operated business to to part of a larger or large corporate Australasian corporate. So um, that was that was the end of that. Yeah. Okay. Oh, a, a pity. Now, so a question for you, Taryn: do, do you use the New Zealand Netflix all the time, or do you still use some of the other ones? 
No, I, st- I still actually go just New Zealand Netflix. The, the one bit that I'm I'm not pleased about missing out on is House of Cards, but I think that will come back on soon. Um, but yeah, as I said, I, I use a local one and it's got a bunch of great content. Um, it's a good sleeping pill, chucking, chucking a tablet on and <laughs> put some B-grade movie on Netflix and off you go. Nate, what about you? Do you do you still use international uh, services, Hulu Plus uh, or US Netflix? And do I ever? Um, my better half's watching Sons of Anarchy at the moment, which I don't know if you've ever watched it, but it's a horrendous show. It's so violent, um, and I it's, think if, it's, it's not great at preaching good family values. No, 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 it's not um, <laughs> horrendously good or uh, uh, horrendously bad. Every or? time, so I'll be. It's been I'll, on TV here, hasn't it? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I'll be sitting on my laptop doing some work and I'll look up and there's just it's just gangs and, and lots of violence lots and lots of just gratuitous violence modern age Game of Thrones pretty yeah much, pretty much it? pretty yeah. much um, so yeah I run the whole suite of Netflix Hulu Voodoo for movies um, and I've also got my parents who got rid of Sky and they've got the same stack and then my partner's family have also got the same stack oh you're quite an evangelist for it then uh, well, I think mainly I got my par- my partner's parents because we'd go over there for dinner and I'd be sitting there going, man, normal TV's boring. And now that they've got Netflix, I can... That way you don't have to talk to them. You can just put Netflix on. And they're using my go. account so I can actually leave off <laughs> <laughs> from where I started, which sounds terrible. But it's so easy to do. But I can see where the Slingshot Global Mode worked really well because if I hadn't set that up for them, there's no way. It's just way too hard. Yeah, but you know, you're becoming more mainstream consumer you know was an early adopter mm. uh, proposition uh, but it's becoming increasingly more mainstream there is a lot of people using these services now for sure yep. and it's becoming more readily available on different devices you know netflix is, is available on pretty much every device um some of the local guys are, are catching up you know neon on lightbox are, you know increasing their device supportability but you know they've still got a way to go but yep. um you know, it's cheap enough that you can have multiple services as you say you know a 15 dollar Max Netflix is a long way from paying $120 for your Sky bill. Yeah. And um, the latest one is um, HBO. HBO originally launched, uh, you had to have a, a satellite, HBO Go. satellite connection yeah, yep, in the right. States. Yep. So a friend of mine's got the satellite connection, so I was pairing off his. Or um, cable. And then they launched it on Apple TV, which I think was for two or three months. They got the, the head start. But now it's available. I use a Roku as my terminating device, and now it's available on Roku. It is quite expensive compared to the others. It's 15 US a month. But, but that's when you get your your your, um, your content that's specific to HBO, which I think Game of Thrones is a. They, they have some pretty good content though. So yeah. uh, and and it's um, you know the the prices we've got used to are pretty reasonable, and I think one of the things uh, is that a lot of their content is you know it's pretty new, right? Whereas Netflix traditionally wasn't all sort of first run new new content, although there's more and more that way nowadays. Netflix, Netflix is great at um, the. Netflix original content you know there's a lot of great TV series coming out um, Jessica Jones one's are the, the newest mm. which is fantastic but they're generally a repository of long tail content there's lots of old stuff it's not it's not something you go to for, for new release movies you know something no. like Neon which is not very well promoted but actually has a pretty good catalogue of recent movies is probably a better alternative the problem with the, the 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 local services is they're just not on enough devices just yet. Yeah. Uh, so, you know, I end up fall, falling back to uh, 
um, you know, Netflix and bit of quick flicks for some of the new new movies and so on. Um, yeah. I w- you know, we'll use those services, but just a lot less because they're not across all the devices that I use. I think one of the, the best things that those services, and Netflix does it especially, and House of Cards is the perfect example, is when the new season of House of Cards comes out, instead of in this traditional sense where, you know, you get a new episode every Friday and you, you watch it through for, for a couple of months, boom the whole series is there and if you want to sit there and binge watch the whole series in one sitting you can or if you want to watch two or three episodes leave it for three weeks and then go back you can really pick and choose when you want to consume that media which I think yeah, and it's, is you really know, powerful one of the key reasons why it's so popular you know the power's in the consumer's yeah. hand and you can consume content where and when you like it no now, big, big fan of the streaming sites Paul that's my short answer that's good as long as you're paying for them, um, which it sounds like you sort of are. Um, we'll, leave, we'll, leave, we'll leave it at that note. Uh, I don't know how I sort of pay for Netflix, but sure. Share it around the, uh, the, the, neighbor, the family. Well, the, the thing with Netflix is if you share it with those multiple accounts, you actually have to go up an account, I think, or the Hulu, one of the two. Yeah, Netflix does have a multiple device. And so I've upgraded product, both those yeah. to, yeah. to run So you it. pay more, which is reasonable. Yeah, which, fair enough. Hey, I'm, I'm not saying anything. Um, now, Taryn, what is an MVNO? Most of our listeners probably will will have an idea, but I'm yeah, sure there'll so be one or two that don't. I and why am I mentioning it? Mobile virtual network operator. This is probably the, yeah. I think that's that, that was what yeah, I was looking. That was what I was looking for. You, you, would, you, 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 you would have been getting a big um, black mark if you hadn't uh, hadn't managed to remember what it stood for. All right, tech. So you passed. Got that one. Yep. That one sorted. So yeah, yeah MVNO is an interesting one. So New Zealand really doesn't have much of a vibrant MVNO market. Um, there was black and white at one stage. Was the black and white is actually part of the M2 group now? Oh, is it? Yep. Interesting that you point that out. Um, and the and the warehouse launched there one uh, yeah, the warehouse about, a, about a week or so ago, didn't they? On the back of Two Degrees. So that's mm. Two Degrees' um, first MVNO partner. So Slingshot have an MVNO product. So we offer prepaid mobile to our consumers. Uh, we partner with Spark for that. Um, but, you know, the mobile sector is very much dominated by the three big guys, well, the two big guys and Two Degrees. Um you know, most places around the world have a quite a vibrant MVNO market that you know encourages lots of competition. Um, in New Zealand, I think it accounts for half a percentage of market share. And a simple explanation of it: it's it's basically just a brand that's piggybacking off one of the existing mobile networks, creating a um, a new virtual mobile network, isn't it? Yeah, it's a it's a wholesale arrangement basically. So, like broadband, fixed line broadband is in New Zealand market. So, all the brands that you buy broadband off wholesale off chorus infrastructure for example whereas in the mobile world you've got spark with mobile infrastructure vodafone with mobile infrastructure and two degrees to a lesser extent so they're all chucking up towers and building their own infrastructure so it's leaning on the on the back of that and wholesaling services to provide it retail so yeah not not a lot of vibrancy going on in the market it's pretty tough for a, for a company like ourselves to make you know a lot of headway so we find ourselves cross-subsidising so we do have quite aggressively priced prepay propositions that we bundle with mobile with broadband sorry um, but you know we, we lost lead essentially on that to, to, to make sure we remain competitive yeah I was having a look at some some of the plans uh, just online a, a few minutes ago and yeah it looked, looked like your offerings were um, were quite you know typical of what's in the market uh, you know, these are nineteen dollar just data plan, which gives you know a gig worth of uh, carryover data each month, or just a general nineteen dollar plan. 
500 megs worth of, of data, um, 100 minutes worth of calling to New Zealand or Australian uh, numbers and unlimited New Zealand and Australian texts. Um, but because you only sell that with uh, two existing uh, Slingshot customers uh, and your customers get nine, $9 off, that actually makes those plans uh, $10 each, which is, is not bad at all. Yeah, so you can't buy them independently. So, you know, the only way we can afford to, to do that is by leaning on the back of our broadband products, mm. Um, mm. you know, which which is still a you know reasonable way to, way to approach a market. Um, so it's for the benefit of our broadband customers, essentially. We're not going out and, and setting up retail stores to sell mobile only. Um, all the mobile plans are SIM only, so we don't do any device subsidies or anything along those lines. So it's a pretty simple proposition that's getting getting good uptake, but... You know, we'd certainly like to see um, a lot more engagement in the MVNO space and, and potentially some regulation to make sure it's a bit more of a vibrant market. And as, as I say, um, you know, we, we account for a tiny fraction of it, whereas we are, you know, a, a real contender in the fixed line broadband space, and that's come out of a lot of past regulation, which enables which enables more competition, which obviously is inevitably better for the consumer. Yeah, we kind of like a bit of competition from time to time, don't we, Nate? As long as it's not in your particular field, you love competition. <laughs> <laughs> always good. Always good. It's like it keeps you on your toes. Yeah, yeah, that's the one. Always good for the consumer anyway. Um, now, what sort of frustrations are there being a, an internet provider? What sort of challenges do you meet out there? Probably the biggest challenge at the moment is dealing with the um, ultra-fast broadband roll-up. Um, so I think it's about 16% of people that can get Fibre have opted to take it up, which is it's okay, but it's been a market over three years now, so it's not it's not too much of a number to crow about. It is pretty complex, um, you know, dealing with the local fibre companies like Chorus that own the infrastructure and install install the product is is challenging. Um, so it's a pretty high cost exercise to go through, but it's really really important. Um, taxpayers are shelling out a lot of money for this initiative. Uh, I think it's something like $1,000 per taxpayer is going into this initiative. It's one of the biggest um, infrastructure investments the country's ever made. Uh, so it's really, really important that it works and, it's, and that it's successful. Um, so, you know, we it's, it's, it definitely is a challenge day-to-day to, to make it as easy as possible for the consumer. And is the, the biggest challenge is just getting that infrastructure installed for the first time or is it, you know, even somebody moves into premises that's got ultra-fast broadband and it's a challenge to get it reconnected? Where, where are the biggest pains? First, first time, absolutely. So yep. if you're in a, what they call a single-dwelling unit, so a house that's not a townhouse or an apartment or a, or a business of multiple uh, tenants and it's not a right-of-way, it's pretty easy. Um, you know, they do it overhead usually or tack it to the side of your fence and whack it up through the house and it should be a pretty simple proposition anything outside of that perimeter is becomes a lot more difficult but once it's in it's in um it's a lot more solid than copper it's not uh you know it doesn't have to deal with weather conditions and the copper goes goes to crap when when the weather goes bad um so you know it is a technically far superior product if there's already fibre in a house or if you're wanting to switch providers from uh, fibre provider to fibre provider, it's really, really simple. You know, tuning between fibre operators is a 24 to 48-hour switch. It's literally a flick of a switch rather than someone, you know, putting a crone tool and patching right, a Right, so bit it's of mu- much easier than it was with ADSL yeah, and ADSL. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Mm. And so, you know, I think 
it's worth the investment in time, you know, because it doesn't cost anything to get fibre installed still. The government is funding that. So it is, you know, worth the investment in time to do it. So, you know, I'd certainly encourage people to jump online, check whether to see their, uh, whether their address is capable, and if it is, get, get amongst it for sure. Yep, yep. I think we're probably all in agreement on that one. Fibre goes one down my road in the next two weeks, so I'm pretty excited. Lucky you. So excited. What yeah. are you on at the moment? Uh, VDSL. Yeah, I mean, it really sounds good. So I think the thing we've found, the entry-level fibre product's only 30 megabit. Mm. Uh, stay away from that. Um, go straight to the 100 meg. The 30 meg fibre is not really much incrementally better than VDSL. So it's really important to go into that kind of 100 meg minimum. You know, one of our brands, Orcon, which is the first provider to, to launch fibre. So we really position them as the, the fibre experts. All of their plans are minimum 100 meg now because... You know, we found that that's the kind of minimum standard required for fibre. Nice. Good stuff. All right. Well, that's uh, just about us for this week. Um, what I will mention is that there is a new conference coming to town. The Asia-Pacific Podcast Conference will be taking place, uh, if all goes according to plan, here in Auckland on the 12th and 13th of February. Uh, so anyone who is interested in podcasting uh, maybe you already produce a podcast or you're wondering whether you should produce a podcast either personally or f- uh, from a business perspective uh, then you can visit apacpodcasts.com apacpodcasts.com um, well that's us for this week now where do we find you guys online nate actually before you do you want to talk about what's happening on friday with the uh... oh yes although that's all uh, all all sold out Okay, maybe let's not talk about Friday. <laughs> we'll, we'll, we'll leave it at that. But um, Nate and I will be in Wellington uh, Friday for those that have got... Uh, What's the official title of the event? ...have got uh, tickets for the Big Tech Meetup happening in Wellington, which uh, covers uh, NZ Tech Podcast, Geek Zone, Hack Miramar, and Access Granted. Right. So, um, yeah, it'd be, be great if uh, any of you guys coming along. And uh, we're certainly certainly looking forward to uh, getting a bit of time down there in Wellington and uh, catching up with um, a, a few people in the tech community. Um, Nate, where, so where do we find you? So I'm just at Nate on Twitter, N-A-T. Um, and you can find my blog on GeekZone. It's probably the easiest way. Excellent. And Taryn, don't bother looking for me. Online, have you, have you, have you, do you do you make yourself available uh, through social media so people can sort of harangue you, or uh, what's uh, what's the best way for people to track you down? No, I just pipe pipe up every now and again in shows like this, and you know, rent a quote and hopefully say something not too contentious. Um, but you know, best via one of our brands, jump on Slingshot Flip or Orcon's website and go from there. Cool. All right. Well, uh, thanks, guys, for joining me. Uh, thanks, everyone, for listening in. Uh, you can find our other podcasts at podcasts.co.nz. Uh, if you haven't checked out our newest podcast, My Kiwi Life, uh, well worth checking out. Uh, it's been riding high on the charts on iTunes and uh, getting more downloads every week because it's uh, it's actually a really good uh, listen. Lots of interesting stories um, across uh, really a whole, a whole range of people. Uh, this week's episode, you hear from someone who climbed Everest and uh, also had a plane crash in the uh, Pacific Ocean about an hour away from Hawaii. Quite quite fascinating tales anyway. And yeah, you can find that at podcast.co.nz. So thanks everyone for listening in. We'll catch you again next week. See ya. The New Zealand Tech Podcast, brought to you by Gorilla Technology, proactive and strategic IT.